You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, greetings, all you raging narcissists. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> you were waiting so long to say that one. <laughs> I was. Uh, I've had that cooked up for a little while. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Because we have another Fathoms and Enneagram podcast episode for you with author, spiritual director, professor, and counselor, Chuck DeGroat, who is an expert on narcissism and knows a thing or two about the Enneagram. So uh, we just wrapped up our conversation with Chuck and I'm still processing, I have to say, Mm -hmm. so much Mm -hmm. of what he shared with us because as you'll see, it's a rich and inviting conversation that I'm going to be thinking about for quite a while. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I, even though we didn't get too much into Enneagram, I did enjoy just kind of dabbling in the nuances of narcissism and how it shows up and the ways it shows up. Uh, I I just thought it was really fascinating talking with someone that has done a good bit of work around that area and in dealing with people that are diagnosably narcissistic. So totally, really fascinating. I'm with you, Creek. And I think it'll be helpful for our listeners to hear the distinction made between somebody that's just a really selfish person, somebody that has narcissistic tendencies or, or characteristics versus somebody who is actually a narcissist or has NPD. You know, yeah. uh, narcissistic mm-hmm. personality mm-hmm. disorder, which comes from, uh, you know, some missing link in, in childhood, you know, a lack yeah. in developmenting or developmenting <laughs> development. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And we all, we all have narcissistic tendencies there. Right. I mean, right. it, but it's just, it, it comes out in nine different ways. Okay. Yeah. Nine different ways, but also, um, I forget who said this. It might have been Eckhart Tolle that the ego shows up uh, as superior and inferior, and narcissism <laughs> can be both those things. You know, yeah, yeah. Especially That's when you really look at great. the different types too. So, yeah, yeah. And you know, Chuck goes into that in his book when narcissism comes to church. Uh, he has he devotes an entire chapter to uh, what he calls the nine faces of narcissism. So, a fascinating look at enneagram type and narcissistic tendencies. And so we don't go into each of the nine types in this episode, but what I loved about our conversation is just the depths at which we kind of go into how we navigate the narcissism that is within us (laughs) alongside the goodness that's within us and how to Mm -hmm. reconcile those two. Yeah. And this, this all just reminds me of you know, another quote uh, from Russ Hudson, who, who says that if our understanding of the Enneagram doesn't go beyond type identification, then really it just tends to be a coddling of our own narcissism. Oh, mm. just a helpful Oops. reminder. That, that, that hurts. That's a great, yeah. No, I actually think that quote uh, really does capture the essence of our conversation. So enjoy this conversation with Dr. Chuck DeGroat. Well, hello again, friends. Welcome to another episode of Fathoms and Enneagram podcast. And on this episode, we have the honor of getting to have a conversation with Dr. Chuck DeGroat. Uh, Chuck, how are you? Drew, I'm really great, and it's good to hear your voice. 
Yeah, likewise. A uh, fun fact about Chuck is probably the highlight of his career, I'm sure, <laughs> is that he wrote the forward to my book. <laughs> I'm completely joking. It's been um, all downhill soon. <laughs> but uh, he did step up at the 11th hour. Those of you who followed season one of the podcast probably followed that whole long uh, drawn out saga and, and Chuck, I uh, was deeply honored by you, uh, writing the forward. So thank you for doing that. Oh man, of course. I loved it. Well, it was such um, a good forward. Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, we are so excited to talk with you because, uh, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do in this season is really exp- explore the breadth and the depth of the Enneagram. So just getting beyond kind of simplistic takes on types And you're the perfect guest to have because you have done a substantial amount of work uh, in a particular area of the Enneagram. But before we get into that, uh, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about who you are? Uh, You wear a number of hats. Just tell us about a few of those and how you use the Enneagram kind of in those contexts. Yeah. Well, thank you all for having me on. It's, It's really good to be with you. And it was an honor Drew, to write the forward for your book. It's so good in the midst of a season where where some of the Enneagram books that have come out haven't been so good. <laughs> I think you've made such <laughs> an incredible contribution. I'm trying to be diplomatic here, guys. Yeah, yeah you're doing a great job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am currently professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary. Uh, I, I often say that now I get to be uh, in the doing color commentary on ministry, ministry after being in ministry for a long time. I was a pastor in pastoral ministry, a clinical counselor for 15 years, and now I'm, I like to say that I'm Tony Romo. I'm up in the booth trying to call the plays before they happen. Uh, <laughs> as I look off at He's good ministry. at that, too. Yeah. yeah, and 2020 has been a year for that. So uh, mm-hmm. I received the Enneagram into my heart back in the late 1990s. <laughs> Praise um, be. Yes. Uh, it uh. was, I, I had, you know, I, it, it was during that time I was in an MDiv program and I was one of these very sort of arrogant, dogmatic, young reformed guys. And I had a professor who nailed me during that time and invited me to do some work. And I ended up doing a master of arts program in counseling, mental health counseling, um, kind of parallel toward my, uh, to my MDiv. And one of my supervisors in that program was a reader of Richard Rohr. And we would read entries from Radical Grace uh, each and every week that we met together. And it was this supervisor who first handed me a book on the Enneagram. I had nothing, I had no concept of this, you know, no categories for the Enneagram. It, it sounded like voodoo or something, but uh, from that early day, it became immensely helpful, and it really matched well some of the clinical categories that I was gaining during that time as well. So I've been using it, teaching on it. I started teaching a vocational counseling course back in 2005 at, at the seminary that I attended um, as a now as a prof, and been using it for a long time. It's such a gift. Oh, that's good. And I should say too, since you didn't, that you are an author of many books, right? But most recently, a book on narcissism, which we're going to do yeah. some yeah. Uh, conversation around that topic. Um, and the book is called When Narcissism Comes to Church. And why don't you just tell us just a little bit about that book? Yeah. Well, so the other books that I've 
written have really come from a deep place within like a I have to write this book. And my last one was called Wholeheartedness. It's sort of a vision of flourishing in, mm. in the Christian life. This was a chore. This was a much harder book to write. This was a, this was something that I was invited to do by some friends because uh, in my consulting work, there were a number of pastors and church communities and organizations who, who would ask me, what do you have to recommend uh, as a good book that would introduce us to uh, how narcissism plays out in the church. And and I'd always offer a few suggestions, but there's never one that quite sort of summed it up uh, as, a, as a kind of helpful diagnostic that wasn't too technical, uh, one that sort of shared stories and provided nuances. And so it was a friend who, one particular friend who said, I think you should write that book. And I resisted Mm-hmm. Uh, until until I couldn't resist anymore. You'd probably know about that, Drew, when you're writing. Yes. I mean, it, you come to a point like that where you say, I, I think this is the book to write. So I find myself it, I find myself talking about it differently than I would other books because um, this, this wasn't uh, a love affair. This didn't come from the depth of my heart, but it, mm-hmm. certainly, it certainly came as I looked at, out at the resources and saw it as a need for the church. Chuck, I think... Um, a lot of people could could probably use a little bit of help um, defining narcissism. I think sure. we simply think of it as like someone who's just overly selfish, and I think it runs yeah. much deeper than that. So, can you give, give us like a yeah, just a rundown of what is what is that definition, and and maybe the things that people assume is narcissism that maybe yeah. isn't. Yeah. So the the most basic definition that we draw from the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, Disorders, that definition gets at uh, a few different attributes. One is grandiosity, kind of that typical onstage grandiosity, uh, the center of attention. A second one gets at a sense of entitlement. I, I deserve applause. I deserve affirmation. I deserve titles. I deserve acclamation. Uh, a third that I think is really important and often neglected is a lack of empathy. Um, someone who's narcissistic personality disorder, I could say more about disorder versus versus just like a style of relating, but someone with yeah. diagnosable NPD is, isn't able to empathize um, because uh, he's, he's so focused on himself. And then, and then what we also see that we have to sort of take into account when we're doing like official diagnoses is... Uh, are disruptions in relationships and in work. And so what you often see is, is a toxic patterns of relating, maybe even a debris field of pain around them, which we often see in the church and in Christian organizations mm-hmm. where there are inevitably staff members and parishioners and others who have been impacted by their style of relating. And so those, those are, that, that's kind of like the typical DSM-5 mm-hmm diagnosis. Those are the categories. Of course, I nuance that like crazy in the book, especially when I get to the Enneagram, but that's that's kind of our standard definition. I think oftentimes, I mean, even with things like OCD, people will use that just haphazardly. They're trying to use a term that is a actual diagnosis of something, mm-hmm. and yet they're mistaking it for just patterns or what you said, mm-hmm. patterns of relating. Can you right. kind of speak on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about narcissistic personality disorder, we're talking about a kind of pervasive style of relating. Um, clinicians call it characterological. In other words, it impacts one's whole character. And we're talking about a way of relating that 
someone learned at a very early age. I mean, there's some mysterious combination of nature and nurture here, but but generally hurt people hurt people and narcissists were bullied, they were hurt, they were abused, and they became people who hurt people. Hmm. Not, not intentionally, very unconsciously and unwittingly, but there are people who you know and who I know, um, and those of us who are authors, I'm sure, and who like to go on Twitter and stuff, who have probably who have some narcissistic tendencies. Uh, there are some of us who like to be on stage or like to speak or need approval, but we're not diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder. And I talk about in the book, uh, one of the helpful ways of talking about this for me, one of the helpful categories is looking at narcissistic style, type, and disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, style, style is, uh, you'll see some, maybe some overconfidence, but it's not, it's not the kind of grandiosity that you see with NPD. With narcissistic type, you might see some more set behaviors. You might see a kind of a pattern of overconfidence that impacts other people. But what I've found here is that they're still able to kind of notice that they're behaving this way or uh, relating in this way and, and, uh, and do some work around that, even apologize or repent. But when we get to narcissistic personality disorder, there's really very little humility or curiosity. In other words, if I, mm-hmm. if I were to say, hey, we need to have a conversation about, about your narcissism, I, I will encounter great resistance. The more the resistance, the more likely the person is NPD. Chuck Abram here. Uh, so to to clarify then, just from my perspective, is it is it possible then for an adult to develop NPD, or is that actually is what you're saying? It actually it comes from some uh, stopping or uh, you know undeveloped process. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, and what's interesting about that, I often think of someone that I mentored in his early twenties. This was a guy who had incredible talent. He'd graduated from seminary. He was a, uh, a relative of a very prominent preacher, and we would talk together about some of his tendencies. He's a little bit arrogant. People experienced him as overconfident, uh, but we worked together during those early days, during his seminary training around, around these things. But, it, but it's almost like the stage drew the narcissism out of him, like it was latent, but as he as he mm. grew in his own presence, uh, I'm talking about uh, in his own writing of books, in his own um, church planting, the growth of his church, larger and larger church staffs, uh, larger and larger public profile. I I watched the expansiveness of the narcissism in him, and I, I remember being at a conference about ten years ago and seeing him, and he immediately averted eyes, like he he wow. looked away from me, almost like wow. oh this mm. guy this guy knows you know, but. Uh, He's someone who I know from from his story uh, has a lot of pain, but I but I do think that is uh, what I've seen at least, um, and and I'd love to hear what you guys have seen. But uh, sometimes as one's profile grows, as the stage grows, uh, there's more risk of failure, and so they become more defensive and more resistant mm-hmm. um, and more self protected, and and thus the narcissism grows, uh, and and the, the some of the things that we see uh, in terms of uh, like uh, staff members beginning to experience this and leaving high transition on church staff problems with in re- interpersonally in relationships, et cetera. We begin to see those things as this more expansive, grandiose narcissism increases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds a little bit like something similar to epigenetics where there's these seeds within you and yeah. the right uh, external environment, you know, uh, awakens uh-huh. those. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good analogy. And I think, I mean, I, this has been my experience of this, right? And I think someone would say, well, yeah, that, that person was narcissistic or did have those narcissistic tendencies. They, they just weren't showing up in the same kinds of ways. And I think mm. with more power, because this is something that um, sort of increases with power, you might say, I think that's what we're talking mm. about here. Um, yeah. There's a capacity to abuse that power, you know, and that's when, that's when oftentimes when I start to hear about uh, the problem or I'm brought into consult or something like that, you know, is when, when power is being used in a way that's abusive. So is it accurate to say then, tell me if I'm wrong, but is it accurate to say that there is maybe a distinction between someone acting narcissistic versus someone actually being a narcissist? Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I think that someone might say, Hey Chuck, you're doing a lot of podcasts these days and self promoting (laughs) your book. That seems kind of narcissistic. Right. And I, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm NPD. Uh, it, it does mean, and what we do see, and I'll just say this, I've been doing assessments for pastors for probably 15 years. And I've done hundreds of assessments. And the vast majority, I'm talking like 75, 80, 90 percent, I haven't actually gone back and looked at the stats, but I'm, I'm talking, I'm very confident that it's very, very high, are cluster B personality disorders, which is kind of the narcissistic umbrella, which, which means that Men and some women, uh, but per- we see the numbers higher in men going into ministry. Buck the trends in terms of like, uh, like uh, by some accounts, ninety percent of people don't like to do public speaking, but pastors enjoy doing public speaking by <laughs> and large. And mm. when they speak, they speak the word of the Lord. Right? This is the word mm. of the Lord. You know, and they speak with authority, and they've got titles, they've got degrees, Master of Divinity, title, ordained minister, minister of Word and Sacrament, and so. We tend to see this cluster of, of narcissism uh, in pastors, ministry leaders, organizational leaders in the church. I was just going to ask if there's a sort of uh, way that you get clarity between someone has real spiritual yeah. authority or someone yeah. is. What's the distinction there in your mind? How do you make that? Yeah, someone has spiritual authority or someone's abusing spiritual authority. Is it- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't that the, the subtitle of yeah. the book? Yeah, right, right. So, so that that's where we get into um, categories like emotional and spiritual abuse, right? When it's the it's the way you hold power. You know, there are some people with power who don't wield that power, and in fact, you want to follow them because because you see in that person humility. And there are others who have power but demand loyalty and demand allegiance. You know, I think we're seeing this on the political level right now. I think we see it in some pastors. And, and oftentimes, you know, when I'm called in to do the work that I do, I'll hear him described as a bully. Um, he's condescending, he's overwhelming, he's bullying. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so those kinds of kind of descriptors of someone who then is wielding power in a particularly abusive way. Yeah, that sounds awful. Um, it is. Chuck, so and I want to get back to uh, more specifically to the Enneagram as it sure. relates to this conversation, because uh, spoiler alert, you snuck a bunch of Enneagram content into this book and yeah. the unsuspecting reader may not know that. Um, so it was a nice sleight of hand there, uh, but you have a, in your third chapter of the book, what you call the nine faces of narcissism. Right. So I'm right. just wondering how the Enneagram framework is helpful in this conversation on narcissism. Well, so this began for me a long, long time ago when I was doing my pastor work, my clinical work. I've, I was a pastor in Orlando and San Francisco, and I started church-based counseling centers in both places. And I've 
worked with lots of Christians over the years and having the Enneagram framework alongside a kind of mood and personality disorder framework as, as a clinician has been really helpful to me to see, to see parallels, right? So back, back when I started using the Enneagram in some of my teaching and supervision that I was doing, uh, I, I think it was probably my students at the time who were beginning to see some similarities like this, this, you know, this Enneagram three, you know, we talk about Enneagram three achiever, man, there's a lot of narcissism in here. Do you think Enneagram threes are narcissists? You know, and I got intrigued by that. Like, so, so is there a sort of a classical or classic sort of narcissist category in Enneagram speak? And interestingly, you probably know this already, Drew, but Naranjo, Claudio Naranjo um, calls the Enneagram seven, the archetypal narcissist. Mm. Um, and, and I, and I remember reading that long, long ago and, and, and saying, yeah, I get that. I, I sort of get the, particularly when we're thinking about the seven, thinking about the disconnection often from, I mean, they're so ruled by anxiety, right? Yeah. And they can be sort of disconnected visionaries with a, you know, with kind of brooding anger at those who don't follow them, those who don't go, you know, as they change their plans and their visions, those who don't go along with them. Mm. So, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. There's, there's definitely some of that there, but I, gosh, I'm a four and I see a, a lot of egocentricity in me, a need to be seen, to belong, to be special. Yeah. My wife's a nine. My wife's a, a beautiful nine and a healthy nine. Um, but there are times when it, it's, it's like, I could feel the I think it's, who is it? Suzanne Stabile, who talks about the nine storing arrows in their quiver. You know, like mm. you just see the eyes, you see the angry eyes. And my wife is the furthest from being a narcissist that anyone has ever been, I think. But but I could see it in some of the nines that I've worked with over the years where it's like, wow, your anger fills up a room, but you're a nine. That's really mm. fascinating, right? And so yeah. that's where I was like, yeah, I think maybe the Enneagram nuances this conversation in important ways. And you've done, you know, it. if you want to hear, you've done a whole kind of survey of the nine types with yeah. with this kind of lens of narcissism. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to pull out a quote that I found interesting that I want, yeah. would love for you to expound upon. Because uh, you, you've done also some podcasts where you go around the horn and talk about each sure. of the nine types. Sure. And, yeah. Um, so it encourage listeners to check that out um, after they buy the book, of course. But yeah. um, the quote, <laughs> the quote uh, that I found so fascinating that I'd love for you to speak more about is, uh, with each type, I try not to present a merely toxic form of narcissism, yeah. but hope that the reader can discern the fine line between the gift healthy narcissism can be and the bite it can inflict when toxic. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. there's a lot there to unpack. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, what well, you know, uh, how each type can express some narcissistic tendencies, yeah. but then I'd also love for you to yeah. talk about this idea of the gift of healthy narcissism. Yeah. Can we start there? Yes. Well, yeah. God, always start with the good news. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's often, that's a that's a puzzling phrase for some folks, and I've gotten yeah. I haven't gotten a ton of pushback on this book, which I'm surprised by, but there have been a few who said, well, what in the world is healthy? Can there even be a healthy narcissism? And what I'm doing there is I'm drawing out from, um, from uh, the world of psychology and this idea that 
we need to start the story with original goodness. Now I'm talking theologically. I just said psychologically, but let's talk theologically <laughs> for a moment. We got to start mm-hmm. with original goodness. And I, when I think of the story of original goodness, uh, God looking down upon Adam and Eve, good. They're very good. They're my images. You know, I I think of how we start in life. Mom, Dad, holding us. Um, there's safety. There's soothing. There's security in the best. Uh, attached relationship uh, early on, right? And we we begin from a place where we are the delight of mom's eyes, right? We're dad's delight, mom's delight. And I, I think about, I often tell the story of my daughter who, when she was five or six years old, would do cartwheels. She learned to do cartwheels. Maybe she's seven. I don't know. She was young, but she'd say, daddy, 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 look at me. Uh, I'm doing a cartwheel. Hmm. There's something beautiful about that. Now, I didn't say, Maggie, that's narcissistic. You shouldn't. <laughs> don't, don't call attention to yourself, you know? And my daughter is, uh, my daughters are 19 and 18 now. And I still delight in them, you know? Um, yeah. it's, but it's different. I mean, we, it's important for us to delight in one another. It's important for us to remember that God delights in us. But if, like has happened for me, the guy who was the captain of the football team, the, the, the star, uh, the high school athlete comes to me now. He's a church planter. Now he's 47 years old and he's got a big gut, you know, and he's out of shape. And he looks at me and he says, man, I just, I thought I was the man back then. And now, you know, I, I, now I'm 47 years old. I'm out of shape and I only have, you know, 70 people in my church. What happened to me? That's a, that's a tragic story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so when we talk about a, a kind of a healthy narcissist, it's living from that place that we're the beloved, that we're, mm-hmm. we're ones in whom God delights. Now, that, that kind of gets at that, right? That kind of gets at that yeah. healthy sense. But when we talk about pathological narcissism, well, then, then we get to, that's where the conversation with the Enneagram matches up well with what motivates each of the Enneagram types. And you guys know that there are triads, right? The heart types, the head types, the mm-hmm. gut types. And I think when I see, when I see this playing itself out without going through the, around the whole circle, you know, the way I see it playing out is with the heart types, the twos, threes, and fours, um, there's a basic shame at the core yeah. and there's an exaggerated need for attention. You know, I want to be seen. I want to belong. I want to be noticed. I want to be approved of with the head types there's a basic anxiety at the core. And I, I think a good longing for security, but this is an exagger- exaggerated, what I call an exaggerated disconnection from vulnerability. Mm. Um, you go up mm. to the tower or the fortress of your head to kind yeah. of remain vigilant and secure in life. And when I think about the eights, nines, and ones, I think about those gut types where there's a basic anger at the core. And, and with that, a good longing for justice and righteousness, I'd say, but... I, I often call this an addiction to conviction. <laughs> and so you see with each and every one of them, there's, there's, there's a certain, there's a good longing. You know, we long to be seen. We long to be known. We long for security. We long for justice and righteousness. And yet those things could be turned in directions that are ultimately uh, self-serving. Wow. I think through, I think, so with any, any type, there is, it's really just the fundamental principle of the type is the overcompensation of the thing we perceive we lack. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like what, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like what you're saying is really narcissism in a type is something that is healthy and good. Yeah. This, this self-interest, yeah. this self-care, yeah. right. this, um, 
celebrating of who you are and your skills yeah. that I often think, especially in the church, is just squashed. It's like, how how dare you think yes. you're good? Yes. And then right. out of that comes even a more stronger response or reaction, mm. rather, of narcissism. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it comes out all cockeyed and awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that that football player that I mentioned, I don't think he was diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder. Um, I do think that his his dad was hard driving and and he turned into a performer. He's probably a three. And when he was, by the time he was in his late forties, he was in a kind of identity crisis, and mm -hmm. he was longing for the affirmation, the applause from his church plant. But but he felt so much shame because it was so small. It wasn't the Thing that he thought it was going to be. And I remember sitting with him and I was smiling at one point and he looked at me and he, I think he thought I was weird. And I, th I think he thought other things too, but <laughs> I was smiling at him. And, um, and I said, man, I like you. I like you so much. I enjoy my times with you each week. Mm. He started to tear up, you know, I mm. said, you are a delightful man. And he just started bawling. And it's just, this wasn't a ploy on my part. This wasn't like a counselor mm. strategy or anything. I just, I really, I could see beyond the um, beyond the shame, perhaps the strategies, and I saw a guy who once once I saw his real heart, I really enjoyed, and I just wanted to say it out loud. And he said to me at some point because I asked him about what happened that day, and he said, "Man, I've been longing for that for so many years. Mm. I just never heard it, and I didn't realize that I was going after it. My vocation and my relationships." porn and affairs in all kinds of different ways just didn't realize that i'd been going after it so hard and just to hear you say that was like there was something inside me that was longing for someone to say that to me for so long and, and the threes everywhere said amen yeah, yeah right right <laughs> yeah mm. i mean that resonates in so many ways yeah I, I long for every one of my fellow threes to hear those words that you spoke <laughs> to, yeah, right. to that client that, um, yeah. cause it's, it is really rare, uh, to hear, I just enjoy you. <laughs> you know, I, I delight in you and some of that's mm -hmm. our own doing clearly. Right. And some of it is people around us don't understand that those are the words that we need to hear. And they may think we don't need to hear them because on, mm. on the outside, we appear that we have it all together all the time. That's right. Until we don't, you know, and go That's see right. people like you. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Chuck, about this concept uh, that you talk about towards uh, later, later on in the book of splitting, which I, I believe you describe as this incapacity to integrate the shadow and the light, the good yeah. and the bad, the yeah. beauty That's and the right. brokenness. Yep. But, and, but you talk about it in the context of transformation, <laughs> you know, for, yeah. for this uh, plague of narcissism. So I'm curious as to why this is such an important concept to kind of understand and own before this path to health and wholeness and transformation. Yeah. So splitting is a, is a psychological concept, but I think in, in lay terms, it's, it's like being afraid of your own shadow. Um, mm. It's being afraid mm. of those parts of yourself that you, um, you deem to be, or others in your life, perhaps parents, coaches, uh, Sunday school teachers, whatever, deemed to be bad there's this uh, analogy or this this picture that I use that I got from Robert Bly. I talk about it in my book, Toughest People to Love. It's called The Long Invisible Bag That We Drag Behind Us. What Robert Bly mm -hmm. says is that uh, somewhere early in life, you're told you know, by your, your pastor that sex is bad, so you put sex in the invisible bag. You're told that, you're told that um, 
<clears throat> oh, any, any number of different things, right? Whatever it is in your culture, in your family, whatever was bad, you put into your invisible bag. You put all the stuff that you did in, in high school into your invisible bag, all the stuff that you would never dare put on a resume into your invisible bag, all of your failures, uh, all the tests that you cheated on, all of that goes into your invisible bag until somewhere about 35 years old, the bag is about a mile long <laughs> and you're, you, you guys no, I'm not entirely sure how old you all are, but I think I'm 50 now and somewhere in my mid thirties, I began to get really tired. I was like, why am I getting so tired? <laughs> um, I'm dragging this damn bag behind me. That's right. I'm yeah. so tired, you know? Mm. And, and at some point in our lives, we've got to open up that bag and we've got to look within and say, oh, wow, I've got disowned parts of myself that I, um, I haven't looked at years. Gosh, I, I was scared. I was scared that someone would find out about that. I've been so terrified of failing. I put that in the empty bag. And so this, the concept of splitting, and this gets to the Enneagram again, um, the false self that we portray, the, the kind of the, the primary energy of the Enneagram for each and every one of us is the, uh, the way we like the world to see us. It's the way we, we've strategized to do life um, in a way that we think will make us happy and uh, secure um, and satisfied. But uh, we, we often discover, and you all know this, that when we come to the end of ourselves, the end of our strategies, we often leave a debris field of pain and disappointment. Our spouse comes to us and says, I'm, there's something missing here. You know, um, I don't know who you are, or where you are, or where you went. And that's when we begin to do our shadow work. That's when we open up that long, invisible bag and say, so what have I neglected in my life? Um, I was reading a book recently on this where um, it said, uh, People who've neglected their shadows, they can't laugh. They can't joke around because they're so scared of saying something inappropriate or stupid. Or, and, and they can't cry. There's no capacity to sort of feel deeply uh, empathy toward themselves or toward other people. They're just, they're just kind of um, sterile and domesticated. And I, I look at my life for a good number of years where I was fairly productive and I was doing good things in ministry. And I was so scared. I was so anxious. And it took opening that invisible bag and seeing like, oh, goodness, Chuck, you've got, mm. um, there's a lot of shame inside there. Yeah. Um, and you have been, you've been living your life to avoid disappointment, failure, shame, not belonging, all the stuff, right? <laughs> That's it. That's kind of how this, this works itself out. And the path to healing is actually opening that bag and saying, oh, Jesus, you love those parts of me too? Jesus actually moves toward those parts. Like Jesus moves towards the mm. people who are deemed um, unwell and unworthy. And Jesus moves toward the parts of us that we deem unwell and unworthy. And I think that's so important. Yeah, thank you. And that's a, a powerful image, I think, that I certainly resonate uh, with as someone who just turned 41. And in many yeah. ways, I feel like I'm, I'm just learning to kind of look back at all that's kind of dragging behind me. Yeah which it's painful, <laughs> but also liberating yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I'm wondering if you could help us just get a picture, some clear picture on how we can use narcissism in a way that helps us uh, move towards, you know, healing and wholeness. Mm -hmm. And if you want to, you could do maybe something with one of the types or two of the types or something, something yeah. there with the Enneagram. Yeah. 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 So I think when we discover our, our, kind of latent or not so latent narcissism, there is a sense of if you if you're in touch with with your own heart, <laughs> if you're aware, there's some sense of humiliation, like, oh goodness, that's how I show up. That's who I am. 
the great gift that was given to me early on when that professor called me out as this arrogant young reformed guy back in seminary, the great gift that he gave me was um, a number of women in that counseling program at the time who said to me, I'm not entirely sure I want you to be in this program because I've, I've walked around the seminary to avoid you. Like I've walked down the hall that you, if I saw you coming down a hall, I walked down a different hall and, and they would talk about the way that I showed up in a classroom, in a conversation, how arrogant I was. When I look back to that, that was my first real humiliation. Like, oh my goodness. I, they, they held up a mirror to me and I, I didn't know that I showed up in those kinds of ways. So I had to ask the question, well, what, what's motivating that? You know, and I, I think a large part back then when I think about my own foreness is I just wanted to belong. I wanted to be one of the guys. I wanted to know what they knew. I wanted to be in the group that they were in. I wanted to, I wanted a tribe, you know, I, I look at some of these, um, these, tr- this tribal Christianity that we see today, you know, these guys that sort of gather together with great certainty. And I think, man, I know that because mm. I lived that. And the great gift that these friends gave me at a very early stage of life, and I could tell stories like this for the you know, the next 23 years, but the great <laughs> gift they gave me was the gift of humility, maybe even the gift of humiliation. Like, yeah. wow, that's, so that's, that's how I'm showing up. And what am I really longing for? And see, that's what my, my supervisors and therapists began to ask me. Like, they didn't shame me for my behavior. They said, so I wonder what that's about. Um, I wonder why you've had to show up in life like this, get all the good grades, to be with the in crowd, to hang around the, uh, and tell the stories of of, uh, of going to places like Oxford and studying at this place and that. I wonder what that's about. And and they they invited me to um, what Barbara Brown Taylor, the great preacher, calls the underneath, what Craig Barnes calls the subtext of my life. You know, mm-hmm. the the parts of us that really animate. We were brimful of longing and fear. And so, what was what was really animating that? I just wanted to belong. I remember just crying like a little boy, you know, 27 years old. I just want to belong. I just want to belong, you know, in my supervisor's office thinking, God, if any of my MDiv friends saw this right now, what would they say, <laughs> you know? Um, but that was it. There was so much healing and finally admitting that I'd been split off, like we talked about a few minutes ago. That I had mm. neglected these, these parts of myself that were, you know, that were really young and fearful, really terrified, you know, that just wanted to, to be a part of the the in group just wanted to belong. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. For 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 those people out there that maybe don't immediately connect with narcissism, yeah. Um, could you say that on some level codependence is the other side of the coin of narcissism? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Say more about that. I, I'd like to hear how you're connecting that. Well, so I'm that's... just thinking if the polar opposite to, of narcissism, at least in my limited understanding, um, yeah. is is codependence where it's mm. it becomes totally about the other person yeah so it, it almost feels like a um a negation of self which is yeah. still another form of yeah um narcissism on some level i think mm-hmm. um i'm i'm kind of processing out loud here i haven't yeah. gone through this whole thing but it, yeah how, how does that hit you is anything yeah. no i think i think what you're getting at uh is reflected in in like the the enneagram nine you know, the codependence of a nine or maybe even a two, you know, where there is, there does seem to be this neglect of self. Like how could they be narcissistic if they're not, if they're, they're so other centered, centered, Mm -hmm. they blend or they participate so well, or they show up. And, and what we all know about the Enneagram is that it reveals the hidden motivations, right? I, Mm -hmm. I help to be helped. You know, I help because there's a deep need 
to be needed, you know? And so I do think that you're, you're onto something. And, you know, when we talk about narcissism, sometimes it's helpful to use the categories of both grandiose narcissism and vulnerable narcissism, um, which is a clinical term. I don't quite like that because vulnerable might not be the right word. Some people call it covert narcissism, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's not the, the classic grandiose narcissism. It's, um, it can be, it can be, uh, it can be someone who looks a little bit more two-ish, uh, four-ish, or nine-ish, um, passive, but maybe at times passive-aggressive. And so, I think you're, I think you're onto something there. But it's not that classic grandiose narcissism that we often talk about, right? So, Chuck, I've deeply appreciated this conversation, and 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 here's why I think. Uh, this is true uh, in theological circles. It's also true in Enneagram circles. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but uh, there seem to be some very kind of uh, a binary approach to Enneagram work. Either you're in the camp of what I would, what we would call toxic positivity, where everything is just amazing mm. and wonderful all the time. Yeah. And yeah, or prob- a toxic negativity that, um, yes. Every- Everything is garbage. You are garbage, except your garbage-like qualities. You know, um, <laughs> and and what you're getting at here is uh, that that there is it's more complicated than that. That this original goodness comes along with this shadow work that we have to do, and we really have to learn how to integrate it and, and yeah. in holistic ways. And my hunch is that the reason uh, those kind of two very certain camps exist is because it's messy in the middle, right? Yeah, that's right. And so I'm wondering if you have just any practical tips or advice for the listener who may be saying, uh, I'm resonating a lot with what you're saying. How do I distinguish between being compassionate towards myself, (laughs) uh, (laughs) recognizing my goodness and also, and not kind of falling into some of these habitual narcissistic tendencies that are harmful. Do you have any practical advice that you might want to pass along? Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Uh, there's, there's an old, I think it's an old rabbinic saying, it says something like keep two pieces of paper in your pocket, um, in each pocket, one that says I'm dust and ashes. And the other one that says the world was made for me. Hmm. Um, and, wow. and I, I really like that. I think there's something to that. So keep Genesis one and two and then Genesis three in your pockets, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I do think that in my experience, those who have leaned into, in the best sense, leaned into their original goodness, belovedness, um, Jesus' delight in them, and who live from that place um, are, are ultimately humble people. Um, hmm. That it doesn't go to their head. And that's the myth, right? That if right. Man, you tell them they're the beloved, they'll, they'll begin to act like they're the center of the world, right? Um, and what we know from good psychology is if you if you love a child well from the start, tell her that she's the the delight of your eyes. You know that she's um, she's she's beautiful, and she's amazing, and she's smart, and she's wonderful. That uh, she'll have a deep sense of self, a deep sense of security, and won't go looking for it elsewhere. Right? Won't need to sort of won't be set up for the kind of narcissism that I described earlier that often comes when you have been told you're worthless, you're nothing. Mm. So you've got to prove to the world that you're something like, and again, this happens unwittingly, unconsciously. I will prove to the world that I'm, um, I'm, I'm worth it, that I'm something. 
Um, yeah. What you guys know, probably if you read the book, is that the underbelly of narcissism is shame. Right. The underbelly of narcissism is not, I'm the beloved of Jesus. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. um, that, that equation doesn't work. The antidote to narcissism, I'll often say, is wholeheartedness. And that's the book that I wrote beforehand. Oneness and worthiness in Jesus. It's a sense of like, oh, I'm held, I'm loved, I'm infinitely loved. And I don't need to go uh, looking for it. And I don't need a bigger and bigger stage for it. So I think it's a really good question. And I think it's probably the thing that there's no right answer. We're all working that out in our own ways, right? We all kind of, I find myself going after attention. You know, you know how this goes through, you write a book and it's like, I just want people to see me. (laughs) Even with this, I like, I have a book out on narcissists. I just want people to acknowledge it. Uh, um, Right. And, and, And yet then there's this reminder, like, you're okay, Jeff, whether it fails, what does that even mean anyway? Right. But, um, you're okay. We, you and I have the privilege to write a book. Who gets to do that? It's yeah. amazing. You know, so. No, thank you. Uh, that is really helpful because I, I do think we often buy into this false logic, you know, that if we are compassionate towards ourselves, if we do honor the, the parts about us that are truly good and beautiful and wonderful, um, that we will become narcissists. It's getting what you were getting at Creek mm. before with yeah. uh, patterns that are often present in church contexts. So thank you for that. Yeah, uh, Chuck, we're coming at the uh, towards the end of our time, which is sad because I think we could go on and on for a long yeah. time. So we'll have to have you back at some point. Yeah. Um, thank you for your wisdom and your insight and uh, the way you hold space, even over uh, the platform of kind of recording remotely in a podcast episode. Just really appreciate the work that you do and want others to be able to find you. So wondering where can people find you and just keep up with the work that you're doing? Yeah, thanks for that. Well, so my website is probably the the best place to look, chuckdegroat.net. I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, places like that. But uh, yeah, I think probably go to my website where I do some blogging and things like that. I teach at Western Theological Seminary in Michigan, and you can look some stuff up there too if you want. Great. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. And yeah, uh, thank you so much. It's thank you, been man. an honor, Chuck, and let's do it again sometime soon, okay? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Truthwork Media Studios.